Good morning, everyone. You guys can take a seat. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant Armstrong, one of the pastors on staff at the church here. Um, Out in the lobby, if you're new, visiting with us, we have a table with a big green flag that says, welcome, we'd love to connect with you, catch your name. We also have a book that our senior pastor, Kelly, has written, and it just describes a little bit about who we are as a church, what we're trying to do. Our ultimate aim is to help people follow Jesus because we believe that is the best way to go through life. Now, whether you're new or you've been around a little while, I'd like to invite you to join us on August 21st at Worship in the Park. Uh, If you're not familiar, Worship in the Park is an outdoor gathering that we hold at the end of each summer. It's a single service for the whole church to join in. Uh, This is a time for kids to sit with their parents, who sit with friends and sit with neighbors, lots of chatting. It's kind of just a laid back feel. We're gonna gather at Lake Ellen, it's right near um, Glenbard West at 10, 10 a.m. And uh, there's gonna be some inflatables for the kids before the service. Service will be done by 11.30. I just found out this last week that there was an ice cream truck who promised if you guys would eat ice cream, he'd let me pay for it. So, uh, so we would like to invite you guys to join us for that. You can even bring a lunch to kind of have a picnic with the fam afterwards if you want. Uh, if you've got curiosity around the details or any of the other things going on at the church, you can find that at gebible.org events. All right, now that we are through the intros, let me pray for us as we start the sermon this morning. Jesus, I find myself so grateful to be able to sing those words this morning, that our lives, our hope, our trust is built on the foundation of your love and your goodness. Jesus, I pray today as we consider scripture that you would speak to each of us, that you'd respond to where we're at in life, the burdens and concerns, and joys, the things that we bring into this room, God, um, that we would know you would ca- that you care about them, you'd meet us in that place. Jesus, we are grateful for you, we love you, we pray this in your name, amen. Now I want you to imagine a story with me. This is not a single story, but it's a collection of conversations that I've had over the last couple years. Imagine I'm sitting down at Blackberry Market, the coffee shop across the street, meeting with someone who's newer to the church. He's curious about who we are, what we believe, how he can get connected. And in these conversations, there are a few key points I try to make sure that I include for these folks. Now one of these ideas is that we do our best as a church not to avoid the more challenging parts of scripture or Christian beliefs. You see, what I'm trying to explain to him is if we're going to help people follow Jesus, we believe that means all of what scripture says, all that he was inviting us to, not just the things that seem to fit nicely within our modern sensibilities. Well, as I say this, I can tell that the man is feeling a little uneasy. He's shifting his weight back and forth, filling the silence with coffee, sips of coffee instead of speaking. So, I ask him a question, half pushing and half wondering. It seems like it struck a nerve for you. And he cautiously responds, do you want my real answer or the one that I think I'm supposed to give to a pastor? Oh, the real answer. I'm not super concerned with who you think you're supposed to be, but I'd like to know what you actually think. He says, to be honest, I'm not always certain about Christianity. Jesus, he seems great 
gives good advice. But the Old Testament's kind of confusing. He pauses and I can tell he's considering whether or not he should finish this second half of his thought. You asked, he says, I like the idea of Christianity, but there are some things in the Old Testament that are disturbing to me. When I read parts of it, it sounds like God is commanding these genocides, and if that's the case, I'm not sure that's any God that I'd like to follow. I can tell as we're dialoguing that this has been weighing on the man and it matters a great deal to him. And I would agree with him, this is an important question to ask, so I do my best to validate his concerns but instead of dismissing them, I want to try to help him, give him some tools to think through what might be going on so he can walk away, continue considering, and decide whether or not this God in Christianity is something that he'd actually like to follow and be a part of. Deuteronomy 7, the chapter that we're going to read this morning, is one of the passages that the man's referring to. Now, if you're not familiar with that passage, that's okay. Many of us spend less time reading the Old Testament because it can be a little dense, a little confusing, even has the word old in its name. It's not the best marketing. And actually, uh, if I'm honest, during lots of high school and college, I had trouble sleeping. I just couldn't get my mind to stop. And uh, I told people the first service this morning, it's the first time I shared with anyone. um, I used to open to the book of Numbers. It has this long list of genealogies and I would start reading it and I'm not kidding, I'd fall right to sleep. But there's stories and history included in the Old Testament and it caused many of us, me included, to pause when we read it. They make us about, wonder about God and how he fits with Jesus, the man who said love your neighbor, or love your enemy, excuse me, and turn the other cheek. This morning, Tim, one of our former elders, is going to read out of chapter seven for us. Well, that's a fun opening couple verses. I'd summarize this section as God directing the destruction of Canaanites and their gods. You see, he wants to set Israel apart as being holy. We see in this portion that it was God's love for the Israelite forefathers, not their strength or their achievements, that was the reason for God rescuing them out of Egyptian enslavement.
Now this portion, we can see what the passage hinges, hinges on. God is filled with a love for people. Because of his love, he is faithful to his promises. He will keep up the commitments in the covenant that he made with the Israelite forefathers. Now this sounds a little bit familiar, and just as God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he will fulfill the promises that he has made to the forefathers, be the only source of blessing for the Israelites. him. These final verses, they mirror the opening one's theme. Utterly destroy the Canaanites and their gods, or Israel will become polluted and detestable. Well, that matching opening and ending, as you can see on the screen, helps to highlight what is central in the passage. It's a way that the author draws our focus into what lands in the middle. That is, God is filled with love for people, and it's because of his love that he is faithful to his promises. He will keep up the commitments he made to the Israelites, that land, blessing, abundance will be given to them, and through them, they will bless all nations. Now, that seems to fit with what we expect of God, but it's what bookends the passage, those opening and closing verses, God telling the Israelites to destroy the surrounding nations. Verse two even says, show them no mercy, that seems to rub us the wrong way, right? Many of us have this prerequisite that God must be morally superior to humans, perfect, bigger, better than us in every way. Why else would we consider following God? So for now, let's assume that he is good and loving and perfect. When we read or we hear something that doesn't seem to fit, I think it's wise for us to ask whether we've misunderstood because it sounds out of character for God. You see, character is this consistent pattern of behavior, whether good or bad. That you would be justifiably suspicious when you're working through an apparent contract violation with a business person who consistently lies to the people around him. Conversely, when your son or your daughter, who's never missed a curfew, is an hour and a half late to return home, you assume there must be a good reason for this. It's so far outside of their character. Now we can approach God in the same manner. The whole of the Old and New Testament, they paint this picture of God's character throughout human history. He consistently demonstrates his concern with restoration, love, forgiveness, redemption. He cares about the poor and the needy, the widow, the orphan, the powerless. In fact, it is that 
that makes this passage seem so outside of the norm, outside of God's character. Now, we've got some options. We can cast this section aside and just cancel the Old Testament God, or we can ask if there's a reasonable explanation for what's going on here. Those opening and closing verses, they give us this clue about what God's concerned with. He's worried about the preservation of Israel and his fulfillment to the promise that he would bless them. Now, that included a promise through Israel, all the nations would also be blessed and restored in relationship with God. You see, God made this covenant with the Israelites, but he made the promise for all of humanity. The Israelites, they were the least likely group to be messengers for the rest of the world. And right now, this tiny group of people who's just been rescued from slavery, they're in a, excuse me, in a vulnerable spot. If they die, the message is lost. If they mix this message about their God and his goodness with ideas about other gods and how to worship those, the message will be corrupted and essentially lost. They're in a fragile state, susceptible to those outside influences. You see, back then, politics, it worked a little bit differently. You either ruled the other nations around you, or you found yourself ruled by those nations. And whoever was strongest got to decide who your gods were, how you worshiped them, and how you would live day to day. So can you imagine being this small group of people? You're looking into this gorgeous piece of land filled with crops and livestock, all the things you would need to flourish. They know that they're small and weak and susceptible to influence from those who are bigger, and more powerful, and more successful than they've ever been. What a mix of emotions they must have felt. On the one hand, desire and awe and eagerness. But on the other hand, probably some nerves and some worry. And maybe they even wondered if they should just start living the way that the bigger, stronger, more successful nations had. Clearly, something was working for these folks. And it's these emotions and temptations that God is cautioning against. But it's what drives those emotions, the things deeper that God is most concerned with. Knowing that the Israelites might trust the politics or the social relationships, the gods, the stuff, the possessions, the money of these other nations to deliver and fulfill the promise of abundance, success, and hope. That's the same promise God made to the Israelites. It's the same promise we all long for in our own lives. It's in response to this danger that God looks to protect the Israelites and commands them to destroy the other nations. Unfortunately, the English word that we use for destroy does a poor job of representing what the author would have intended. Now, because there is so much distance between when this was originally written and today, we can sometimes struggle to find a word that adequately represents the idea. A better way to understand this word destroys something like total rejection, complete removal of influence, to deny entirely. The intent was for the Israelites to remove the influence of the surrounding religious practices to avoid idols and devotion to other gods eventually working their way into the Israelite society, corrupting God's relationship with them and derailing the plans he had for humanity. Um, are there any Chicago Bears fans in the room? 
Okay, I would be cautious too if I was a fan. Um, now if I said to you, man, the Bears killed the Packers last night, we totally destroyed them, they've got nothing left. You would think, I wish we got to say that, but we never do. <laughs> no, but in reality, if I offer something like that, we'd all know exactly what I was saying. None of us would think, oh, somebody died, because we know every year these teams are gonna go head to head and fight these epic battles. But no one was killed or destroyed or completely wiped off the face of the earth. However, if somebody, an alien from 2,000 years in the future, shows up and they don't know a lot about our culture and they don't know anything about football and they read those phrases or heard those words, they might conclude something very different because the context is lost on them. The most evangelical scholars suggest that the passage we're reading this morning is not so different. In fact, they say it's best to read this as a battle or a war story. And in the ancient Near East, authors would recount war history with hyperbole and highlight these lopsided victories. It was as if whoever won lost no people and the the folks that lost, everyone died. You see, the authors, especially for uh, the Israelites, were concerned with saying the outcomes of the battles and not so concerned about the details of how they got there. Now, this is different than how we approach history, but it's how all people approach history at the time. You see, the verses immediately following that word destroy, they go on to say, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy, don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And it seems to me that these verses, these commands would be entirely unnecessary if there was no people left to marry, to make a treaty with, to be a neighbor to. The concern was about the mixing of the Israelite beliefs and practices with those of the surrounding nations. Now we also know that not all the Canaanites were actually destroyed. Many of these groups of people continued on to coexist with the Israelites much later. You see, in this passage, God outlines his conditions to bless Israel with the land. He says, destroy these nations, then your worship will remain holy, and God will bless you by giving you land and abundance. Oh, this is an if-then condition. If they do this, if they're obedient, then God will bless them. And we know God blesses them. He does give them the land, so they must have fulfilled that first part of the condition. But if not all the Canaanites were destroyed, that word must mean something different than kill every man, woman, and child. In fact, archeology span suggests that it's more likely that the Israelite armies were fighting these military outposts that primarily contained fighting age men. Well, you might ask me, is that okay? God still commanded a, a battle wanted people to be killed? I actually think that this reflects God's commitment to justice. You see, a part of his perfect love is to care for those who've been a victim. A judge isn't immoral because she sentences a criminal to prison for abusing a child. She's bringing justice to that victim, protecting him or her from getting hurt again. She has made things right and fair. God used the Israelites to bring about justice against a people who had declined into a wicked state. God also uses other nations to judge Israel when they act wickedly. So while God keeps his promise to the Israelites, 
keeps his commitments in the covenant, he is simultaneously maintaining his character as a just God by punishing an abusive people and removing them from power. All of this was done with the goal in mind to preserve God's relationship with the Israelites as the object of their exclusive devotion and trust. He wanted them to know that he would save them. He was committed to protecting them because their success meant a blessing for the rest of humanity. Just as he promised, God fulfilled his end of the covenant with the Israelites. You see, God created humanity to look and act like him and to carry his image into all the world in a good and a beautiful way. But very early in human history, humanity was overcome with pride and sinned, believing that they knew what was best for themselves, more than even God their creator did. So instead of following his directions, they disobeyed his commands, and broke relationship with him, leading to estrangement. Through that disobedience, what we call sin, death was thrust upon the human story and would in fact all created order. But God in his goodness and his mercy and his love, he didn't leave humanity in that state of death and destruction. No, instead, he initiated a rescue plan to redeem and restore us all to that original state of good. You see, he intends to remake this world to be perfect once again, and he did that by sending his message of love across the ages of all history. And this was displayed most fully when God sent his only son, Jesus, to live under the same conditions and stresses and temptations that we all live under. Jesus, instead of falling prey to sin, was able to stand up strong and he resisted sin and disobedience. And in one final display of the depths of his love, Christ died on the cross to pay for the cost of all the injustices in the world, to make what was wrong right again. But the story didn't end there. He rose from the dead in bodily form, and in doing so, he overcame the curse of death. He had conquered both life and death putting on full display God's love and devotion to his people, fulfilling that promise given centuries ago to the Israelites that God would rescue humanity, not because of their goodness, but because of his goodness. That is the plan God wanted to protect with the Israelites. He chose Israel first to carry forward that message. And once his promise to them were fulfilled in Jesus, there was a new promise that would define the people of God again, given for all of humanity. And it's that promise that sets Christians apart from all other religions and beliefs. A promise that God is here to rescue us independent of what we've done. Some of the things we do, Christians might do, might look, sound a little bit funny or odd. Some of them look and sound similar to the world and culture around us. But we do these things, the underlying reason we embrace a practice or a habit is because we have been rescued from our sin, not because we've earned it or proved we were worthy in any way. We've been rescued because God is filled with a love for the world that runs so deep that he'll do anything to restore people back into perfect relationship with himself. And we can now live in a way that invites others to experience that same love. Now this morning, if that promise of rescue is something you've longed for, something you thought, there must be more in the world than just what I'm seeing. 
That's God inviting you to trust him. See, he's often at work in us long before we're even aware of it. And if you sense this morning that you're stirred and you wanna take a next step, it's really simple. You can simply give voice to your desire to follow God. Even as you sit in your seat right now, you can accept his gift of restoration by acknowledging your own sin and receiving the forgiveness that he's extended. And if you do that in whatever fashion feels natural to you, I promise that your life, it's never going to be the same. You'll be completely transformed to a new person. Jesus said it would be as if you were born again as a new man or a new woman, living the same life but completely different because now you are living out of restoration instead of living out of brokenness. That is the plan of rescue that God set out so long ago to see accomplished even and especially for all of you. And although we live with a new promise from God, his warnings about where we place our trust to fulfill that promise are still relevant today. As a pastor, I often see this play out in two ways. One option, people kind of circle the wagons. We only hang out with Christians, quick to denounce anything that's not initiated by the church. Only engage with things that seem safe because they're Christian. And in the long run, I don't think that serves people all that well. The other extreme, folks consider themselves to be saved by Jesus, but nobody would ever know. Their lives look no different than their neighbors. They're content with just being nice. And in their desire not to look weird or to ostracize or offend anybody, they fully embrace the lifestyles and the actions of people who don't know God. Now I'll admit that this is a tough needle to thread Sometimes our behaviors and our concerns, they can run parallel to that of culture. Consider things like tithing and philanthropy, both about giving money away to nonprofits, both are good. I wouldn't discourage either of those. Or what about the conversations that church has had about race and equality, human value and dignity? I believe that these are rooted in people being made in the image of God. The church, has a similar value for human life as maybe some secular movements that are concerned with loss of life. But the fact that these two groups have different reasons for their overlapping conclusion doesn't actually negate that value. In fact, it points to God's grace pushing out into every aspect of the world. And Jesus says, I tell you, if my disciples are quiet, then the stones will cry out. Well, before you're tempted to judge a person, that you know lands in one of these positions, let's extend them some grace and consider their character. Ask if maybe they're acting that way for a good reason. See, life is so much more complex than a black or white. Maybe they know they're susceptible to being influenced by something other than God. We wouldn't judge an alcoholic who decides not to go to a wedding reception with an open bar. In fact, he's being thoughtful about where he might be vulnerable. Equally, let's be careful about judging when somebody participates in. See, even Jesus was accused of being corrupt for spending time with drunkards and prostitutes and those considered unfaithful. But the Apostle Paul, a man who writes most of the New Testament, asks us the question, if we don't spend time with the folks who don't know Jesus, how are they ever going to hear the good news of the gospel? The question is, 
Where are you placing your trust for hope and fulfillment and salvation? Those of us who have been rescued by Jesus must trust that God will fulfill his new promise to us just as he did with the Israelites. Things like politics and power, possessions, our social relationships, none of those are bad. But what God warns us against, just as he did the Israelites, is of being influenced or convinced that somehow those things will lead to a better life and healing and fulfillment and salvation. That somehow they could save us. Christians are free to live in any way that invites others to be restored and reunited. Sometimes that means we avoid certain activities. Other times that means we jump right in. The goal is to invite others to experience healing from their wounds, to receive forgiveness for the wounds and the pain that they've caused others. Most importantly, to be reunited with their Heavenly Father. I don't attempt to live these things out because I'm better or from a position of superiority. No, it's the opposite. I am so grateful for the healing and the forgiveness that I've received that I want every other person to experience the same thing. I want them to know the goodness and how wonderful it is to be reunited with God. Like a child who's been estranged from a parent reconciling after so many years. The joy and the beauty of that relationship being healed. That's why I live the way I do. But I'm convinced if we confuse that message or we're shy about sharing the gospel, we do an injustice to the people around us. If we advocate for the same things as everybody else, if we give money away to nonprofits, if we both help the single mom in stress, those are good things, but if I don't share with them that I've been rescued and I want the same rescue and dignity and freedom for them because of the work God has done in Jesus, I rob them of the most valuable treasure. They miss a chance to know and experience God's love and the relief of his forgiveness. So this morning, if you've wrestled with questions like that, I wanna encourage you. There is a God who is good and loving. Those questions are worth asking. Any of the pastors or people here would love to sit down and talk with you about those. We won't respond in judgment. We just want to hear what's going on in your life and how you've been relating to God. I'm going to leave you with two questions as we go this morning. The first is, where have you anchored your trust for success and healing and hope? Is it in the only God who has displayed over and over that he'll do whatever it takes to rescue humanity? Or is it in something else? And if you have tethered your trust to that God, what are the ways that you're living that would ensure the people around you are invited to share in the experience of God's fulfillment of his promises? So we're gonna finish the service with a couple of songs. The band's gonna come up now. And as we sing, there'll be a couple folks down front who would love to pray with you. I know some can sometimes feel strange, but I'd invite you not to be shy. If you felt moved by God this morning, if you find yourself wanting to respond to him, maybe it's in your seat, but maybe you come forward. We'd love to pray with you. If you reflect on your life and you think you've put your trust in something other than God and his promises, consider coming forward and asking for prayer. If you've wrestled with the desire to circle the wagons 
or a fear about sharing your faith and living boldly, come forward to be prayed with. Ask for wisdom and strength. None of these things will be held against you by us or by God. I think God is eager to meet with you, to share with you the love that he has for you. Prayer is such a wonderful way to experience that. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord, he is good. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Go in peace.